I'll tell you something I love about being in France, in addition to some seriously delicious butter, and that is the wide selection of wines I can find in France for low prices. It can be much more difficult to source those same bottles back in the States, and that's why I love to buy wines out of France with Ideal Wine. I have bottles shipped to me, hassle-free. It's easy. Ideal Wine has a new auction every week and is a great source for iconic names like Ouette, Louis Roeder, and Domaine Lefleve, as well as rising stars like Arnaud Lachaud, Gonon, and Tissot. Find the wines you'd rather be drinking at idealwine.com. That's I-D-E-A-L-W-I-N-E.com and have the wine shipped to you in the States. Use the promo code FIRST, F-I-R-S-T, for $15 off your first order of $150 or more. Hey, that's $15 you could save, and that is some good butter money. See for yourself at Ideal Wine. I'll drink to that, where we get behind the scenes of the beverage business. I'm Levy Dalton. I'm Erin Scala. And here's our show today. In this episode, we're exploring the wines of Lake Garda. The bulk of these interviews took place in December 2019, just before the coronavirus pandemic. Flying into the region where you'll find Lake Garda, you look down and you see the series of glacial lakes that melted into alpine crevices. In the sun, they sparkle and shine like pale blue moonstones. And as the plane descends closer to the snow-capped Alps, you just know you're about to be in a special place of elegance amidst a rugged mountain backdrop. The greater region we're exploring today is this particular place in the Alps where the glacial lakes lie one after the other, tucked into the foothills. Not unlike the Finger Lakes, but in this case, they're nestled up against the majestic, domineering mountain range of the Alps. If you're not familiar with this region, you'll hear some new words. Garda is the lake, Lake Garda. Bartolino is an historic town on the southeast banks of the lake. And Bartolino has also become the wine region. So sometimes when people reference Bartolino, they're talking about the town. Sometimes they're talking about the wine region. You'll also hear the word Chiaretto, which means pale pink one, and it refers to the rosé from Bartolino. Lake Garda is a fascinating place. The wine region, as you can imagine, is dominated by the microclimate created by the lake. You have to understand that because all the water which is there, the climate is very different from when you go 50 miles east or west of, of the Lake of Garda. So we can grow olive trees around the Lake of Garda, we can grow citrus. The temperature will not go below 32. It might go to 34, 33, but it's not going to go below 32. So it's wonderful for all these plants, you know. Uh, we make also olive oil near the Lake of Garda. It's not much, but uh, it's, uh, it's uh, an interesting thing to see how the big lake creates a microclimate, which is sort of unique, and uh, makes also the vines very happy, you know, because the vines can take lower temperature, but they don't like it. I told you before they like human beings, right? Human beings can take a lower temperature, but it doesn't like it. That was Gabriele Rasse. He makes wine in Virginia, but he grew up near Lake Garda, and share some memories throughout. I also spoke with Angelo Peretti, a fascinating resident of Lake Garda, and he's done a deep dive into the history of the region. He also has been writing about the wines of Lake Garda since the 1980s. Lake Garda is a Mediterranean environment inside the Alps. We are near to the Alps. Uh, we have Monte Baldo, it's uh, 1,800 meters high. It's, uh, there is no one Monte Baldo, but near to the lake, we have a Mediterranean environment. In my garden, I have lemon trees. Gabriele and Angelo both describe a unique microclimate around the lake, one that is warmer in the immediate vicinity because the temperature swings are mitigated by the body of water. And what an interesting body of water Lake Garda is. Its cavity is made up of a gaping scratch clawed out by a glacier as it retreated into the Alps at the end of the last ice age. 
the glacier left behind its footprint of various soils it had scraped up over centuries. As it melted, it deposited these incredibly varied soils on Lake Garda's banks. They're high in salts, especially towards the southern banks. And there's also hyper-regionality if you examine Bartolino's ancient crews. Analogies are often made between Cru Beaujolais and Cru Bartolino, as both regions make wines of similar style and increasingly rely on a crew system. Lake Garda has an interesting shape. It's long and thin in the north, jutting into the Alps like a baton. Then in the southern part, the lake splits into a basin in what was once the glacial delta. The glacial moraine, also referred to as moranic soils or moranic soils, deposited around the lake have left behind distinct terroirs. The Lugana region hugs the bottom of the lake and is known for special clones of brilliant and dense Trebbianos. Bartolino follows the southeastern banks and has a classical area that corresponds with old wine regions. Bartolino is famous for light juicy reds and also a salty rosé made from blends of Corvina, Corvinone, Prandinella, and Molinara. Yes, these are the same grapes you'll find in the Amarones and Ripassos that are made in Valpolicella just a few miles to the east. On the surface, it may appear that Bartolino and Valpolicella have much in common, but when you drill down into climate and soil type and style, they're quite different despite the similar grapes. Valpolicella has long been the more popular region, and you'll hear winemakers refer to the ripe styles popular in the 1990s that sort of drove the popularity of Amarone and Ripasso. But with the style pendulum swinging away from high alcohol, high sugar wines, the wines of Lake Garda are really having a moment. But to truly understand Lake Garda's place in today's Mediterranean wine ecosystem, we must look back about 2,000 years to ancient Rome. The way ancient Rome viewed this area within their empire is the key to understanding how Lake Garda fits into the world of wine today. Just what is this ancient Roman perspective that brings everything into focus? I'll tell you after a quick break. I talk to winemakers all the time, and something they tell me is that oxygen management is a key to aging wine. Finding the right balance is crucial. And that's why I recommend DM's revolutionary cork closures. With DM corks, winemakers can achieve precisely controlled oxygen management after a bottle leaves the winery, ensuring a wine that matures gracefully and reaches its full potential. With over 2 billion DM corks sold each year, it's clear that winemakers worldwide trust DM for consistent results. And DM has recently expanded the permeability options for their popular DM10 and DM30 closures, providing winemakers with even more flexibility to choose a cork that will guarantee the kind of wine life they envision. Banish surprise dud bottles and embrace DM closures. Your customers will thank you. In North America, DM products are exclusively distributed by G3 Enterprises. Ready to ensure the lifespan of your wines? Go to dm-closures.com forward slash I-D-T-T to learn more. That's D-I-A-M-closures with an S dot com forward slash I-D-T-T for more information. Okay, so the key to understanding Bartolino. If you look on a topography map, you'll see a fertile region in North Italy, almost a triangle that's cradled by the Alps on one side, the Apennines on the other, and the Adriatic Sea on the coast. You could also think of it as a triangle between Venice, Bologna, and Milan. A little over 2,000 years ago, this area was populated by Gauls, the predecessors of ancient France. It was more Gallic and Celtic than Roman, Gauls also populated Provence on the other side, the West Alps. In fact, their territory was vast, and a subgroup of the Gauls considered their territory and culture around the Alps, spanning from Provence, across the mountain range, and down into the foothills on both sides. The Roman Empire expanded in the Imperial Age, and they set their sights on specific regions. 
They wanted this alpine region and all of the economic products it held. They wanted to expand vineyards and agriculture, and they targeted two specific regions, the Fertile Triangle in today's northern Italy and the area of what is Provence today. If you're Roman, you look at these regions from the perspective of Rome. On a map, northern Italy is this side of the Alps, and Provence lies on the far side of the Alps. And that's exactly what they named these two regions. Cisalpina, this side of the Alps, and Transalpina, the other side of the Alps. So Cisalpina and Transalpina. And Lake Garda sits right in Cisalpina. Yes, Chiareto was rosé because it has a Roman origin. The Romans, during the imperial uh, age, introduced uh, uh, at Lake Garda in Gallia Cisalpina, they introduced the press. If you press uh, the grape, you can't make maceration. And if you don't make maceration on the skins of the grape, you obtain a rosé, you don't obtain a red. So our tradition, our history deals with rosé, it doesn't deal with red. It deals with rosé and it's the same origin of the rosé from Provence. Because Provence was Gallia Transalpina, and Lake Garda was Gallia Cisalpina. There were two provinces during the Roman imperial age, and the Romans introduced the press both at Lake Garda and in Provence. In Provence. Oh, at the same time? At the same time. Oh, okay. The third, the third, about the third century after Christ. Rome specifically targeted Lake Garda and Provence for rosé production, to have a pale red wine in both cheese and trans alpina. So when you hear about rosés today coming from Bartolino, it's actually an echo of Lake Garda's ancient past, dating back over 2,000 years. Wine journalist Catherine Cole authored the book Rosé All Day and is a bit of a rosé expert. Rosé wines, or pale red wines, were popular in the ancient world, and it's rare these days to see a region identify so deeply with their history in this way. There's this whole history of wines that are called clear clear wines, whether it's called um, a Vin Clair or a Chiretto or a Clarete in Spain. And Chiretto is really the only, uh, Bartolino is really the only region that has really identified that they have something special here and dug deep into this genre and, and really kind of banded together as a group to improve the quality of this grape and 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 tell the world about this. And I think in the future, there will be more regions that look into their own history and celebrate their own quote-unquote clear wine styles. Historically, Lake Garda was famous for a few different products, wine, silver, lemons. But over the course of the 1900s, the silver industry has waned and lemon production dropped during World War I. Gabriele grew up near Lake Garda and remembers the silver industry. There were maybe 450, 500 silversmiths in Vicenza, and uh, now there are 130, something like that. And Angelo describes the lemon industry and its decline. World War I, uh, it had affected the production of lemons here at Lake Garda, or lemons, not of wine, and it affected the, the, the lemon production because this was the border between Italy and Austria, it was a very cold winter, the 1918 winter was, uh, sorry, 1915 winter was very cold. And so the soldiers used the woods that covered the lemon gardens in order to build their houses. The lemons were exposed to um, freeze and, and they died, and they died. Because Lake Garda was very fi- famous for the production of lemons. We, we used to export our lemons to Russia, to Germany, to Poland, to Europe. And our lemons were and are very different from the others from southern Italy because our lemons have, have a very small skin. So they are very full of juice. And this was considered a, a symbol of quality in the past. Uh, it was called the Limone Modello, the, the, the benchmark for lemons. Wine was one of the few industries that never really suffered too much in this region. In the late 1800s, the wines of Lake Garda tended to be produced and bottled as crews, 
and they were exported to the famous hotels of Switzerland. At the end of the 19th century, uh, the best Bardolinos uh, from the cruise of Bardolino were exported to the hotels in Switzerland. The hotels in Switzerland at that time were the most important hotels in Europe and the most important people in Europe used, it, used to, to spend their holidays there. And the wine list of Beaujolais contained the cruise from Bourgogne, the cruise from Beaujolais and the cruise from Bardolino. Bardolino at that time was considered a wine very similar to Burgundy. And nowadays the wines from Bardolino are very similar in color and in taste to the wines from Morgan, Fleury and Moulin-Auvent in Beaujolais and from the Côte de Bon in, uh, in Burgundy. In the late 1800s, Giovanni Battista Perez described the historic subregions of Bardolino, namely their La Roca, Soma Campania, and Montebaldo. In Bartolino, a lot of the producers are focused on sort of rediscovering their ancient crews. And here's a quick word from Luca Valetti of Cantina Valetti talking about his crew of La Roca. We are in Calmasino, that is in the area of La Roca, a sub-origin uh, area of Bartolino. Well, La Roca has uh, uh, more spicy tones. Very, very typical, very spicy, with a, a final of uh, black pepper and um, very sapid in the mouth. I caught up with Daniele from Villa Calicantus at a tasting, and he gave a quick overview of the cruise. In, La, in the, the region of La Rocca, you have what is the, the characteristic soil of the, uh, of the Bardolino area, that is the Morenic soil, the poorest soils, so with more stones, with more uh, calcareous in, uh, um, are in, in this area. When you move from, from the lake, from La, the area of La Rocca, to the other sub-areas, uh, sub so the other areas to, uh, near the mountains and, and uh, to the south, you have more deep and rich soils, okay? Mostly on the, in the south, in Soma Campania. Here the soils are much more deep and, and, and rich, so you have more limestone. And you see it uh, that uh, because the, uh, the wines are more high in alcohol with less minerality and more body usually. So, uh, you know, the, this is why the, the Bardolino Classico was La Rocca, because the traditional Bardolino is a Bardolino uh, light in color, light in alcohol, uh, fine, elegant, with uh, incredible drinkability, but if it's coming from the right places, for the right spots, from the right hills, from the right exposition, from old vines and it's uh, aged well, you can have um, uh, a very complex wine. This reconnection with ancient crews is a part of a larger region-wide effort to recover the unique wine identity of the region. In the late 1900s, tourism became the new model for Lake Garda's economy. Tourists would come for lake vacations in the summer, and even today the population swells by millions during the peak summer months. Locals also visit on the weekend. I was going to the Lake of Garda when I was uh, a kid, right? I mean, every Sunday, uh, one Sunday was Venice, one Sunday was the Lake of Garda, right? And so it was really beautiful to see this little vineyard, uh, which, of course are very difficult to deal with because you cannot use big equipment, you cannot do all these uh, wonderful things that now you can do, right? Uh, taking care of them with big machinery, right? But at the time, it was beautiful to see how people were willing to spend some time to work in a little vineyard because my grapes are different from my neighbor grapes because there's different kind of soil, right? Lake Garda is also famous for heavy winds, and it's become a major kite-surfing destination. The lake has sister lakes, Lake Como, Lake Lugana, and so on, and they have also come to depend on tourism as their main economy. In reaction to this tourism, local wine producers really struggled to meet the demand of all the people who were coming to visit. A regional focus went towards quantity over quality, and Bartolino wines lost a little bit of their status in the world. In the early 2000s, the wine community there, they sensed a need for a change. Yes, they made a lot of wine, but the quality seemed to have lost some of its international reputation since the late 1800s. So movers and shakers around the lake decided to institute a few initiatives to bring up quality and to move away from the bulk wine model. 
Those initiatives included creating regional standards for and promoting the 2,000-year tradition of Chiaretto Rosé, also returning to the crew model for high-quality Bartolino Reds, and also to contextualize their wine in the greater region, including the history of wine from Cisalpina. And in the midst of this uh, reckoning, in the late 1900s and early 2000s, there was still no real consensus on late Garda Rosé. Everyone made it a bit different, and it just wasn't a main focus. In fact, at Cavalquina, when Luciano Piona made a pale pink rosé, today that's the benchmark for Chiaretto, it was actually rejected by the DOC. Here is his son, Francesco Piona, with the story of his father's rosé that would become a bellwether for the region. Uh, in the first year in the, that my father arrived to the company, he looked at Chiaretto in a different way. He would like to obtain a very uh, fresh wine, very salty wine, uh, so a white wine with a pink color. So he understood that uh, he wanted to do a different work on the curetto and we decided to press them only uh, to do a maceration in the press, only for 12 hours. And so we obtained the profile that uh, we, we, will, we were searching. And... Uh, at the same time, we obtained also a very slight pink color. Slight pink color that at the time wasn't accepted by the, by the DOCC, who was rejected. Uh, now we are quite happy that uh, this uh, very slight color is uh, also used by all other, a lot of other uh, producers and uh, uh, because uh, we understood that we weren't so wrong at the beginning. So how did the region come together and decide on a unified rosé style? Well, it all transpired in 2014, when many producers faced a common threat. They got together and tried something new. What exactly happened in 2014 that shifted the destiny of an entire lake? Keep listening to find out. I've been lucky enough to try some amazing wines while traveling over the years. Unfortunately, I've found that some of those same wines are really hard to find here in the United States. Whenever I run into trouble finding a favorite bottle, I go to idealwine.com and they have what I'm looking for. Whether it is a hard-to-source bottle of Burgundy or a micro-production natural wine like I Need the Sun by Domaine de Miroir, I know there's a chance that Ideal Wine might have it available. And Ideal Wine's entire Paris inventory is available to American customers with just a click. The process is seamless, the site is easy to use, and orders are shipped directly to you. Head over to idealwine.com, that's I-D-E-A-L-W-I-N-E.com, to see for yourself what you could be drinking. So 2014 was a rainy, rainy, wet year. And I'm not a point person, but if you peruse the vintage charts as a general measure of a year overall, it's pretty clear that 2014 wasn't the best for the Italian peninsula. And most regions score in the mid to high 80s for quality, sandwiched between a lot of 90s vintages. In Bartolino, this was no exception. It was very rainy. And press rosé had been discussed since the 1990s as a possible way forward for the region, and 2014 was the year to try it, because it certainly wasn't panning out to be a great red wine vintage. So many producers, they went all in on press Chiaretto, picking earlier and doing a single pressing. And I got to taste some of these rosés, with about five years of age on them. And they were extraordinary. 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 Overall, the Chiaretto rosés from this vintage, they were complex, they were nervy, they were salty, they had this refreshing but uh, haunting grapefruit citrus aroma and that 
grapefruit salty thing. It was like a, it was awesome. And I also tried these side by side with some of the higher alcohol rosés from around the Mediterranean basin. And these Chiaretto rosés were clear standouts from the 2014 vintage. So I can see why after these results in a bad year, the region sort of took a turn towards making more and more of these pale pink rosés. Angelo Peretti had long pushed for this change in style, and this year the results were so extraordinary that the region termed the shift the Rosé Revolution. Everybody in Italy was talking about the 2014 vintage, telling that it was a horrible vintage because it continued to rain. That was a problem for Italy, but it was not a problem for Lake Garda because we need freshness in our wines, and it was a perfect year in order to make a change in our wines, and we decided to perfectly respect our main grape, that is Corvina, and we decided to change the way uh, we produce the rosé by passing from the Saigné method to the direct press method in order to obtain a wine very light in color because Corvina is very light in color and so we decided to truly respect our grape, our main grape and it was a big success. Not for the color itself but for the um, flavors and for the perception of the wine in the mouth for salinity, for freshness for the final tannins that are a character of our wines, and, and it was a big success. And we changed everything in 2014 with the so-called Rosé Revolution we made. We started making Chiretto very soon, just uh, at the beginning, in 1975. But uh, Chiretto is becoming uh, very modern uh, and popular in the last uh, ten, 10 years. At the, at the beginning, we make uh, 80 red and 20 Chiretto. Now we are making uh, 70 Chiretto and 30 red. The future is Rosé for Bardolino. One of the aromatic and tasting descriptors that comes up with Chiretto and um, the Corvina grape, it, grape, I'm using the Italian rolled R when I'm speaking English, um, is grapefruit. And that comes up in a few other regions, notably in Piemonte, which is pretty close by, actually. Um, but it's interesting because it's one of those descriptors where you're tasting and you're kind of like, what is it? I don't know. What, what am I tasting? It's not sweet. I feel like there's fruit, but what is the fruit? And as soon as you know that grapefruit is, um, grapefruit and salt really are the two things that really define Chiaretto. Once you kind of know that, every time you taste it, you're like, oh, there's a grapefruit, there's a grapefruit, there's a grapefruit. And, it, and it's really lovely because it really ties the region together and, and it creates this narrative that whether you're north or south ties all these wines together. Uh, the Chiaretto, the new Chiaretto with the Rosé Revolution, 2014. That was Marco Leginestra, who referred to the 2014 shift as the new Chiaretto. And other winemakers also recall the switch from Sanier or Salsasso to direct press method. Roberta Bricola of Gorgo took over her family's winery, which stylistically is a blend of crisp modern architecture and almost like the rustic Wild West. And she exudes magnificent intensity, as if a Sedona energy vortex could be embodied. It's an interesting place where you feel equally at home sort of roasting game over the fire and cutting into big hunks of cheese as you do sipping rosé and nibbling panettone. Roberta recalls the switch from the dark-colored Salsasso rosés to press rosé. Have you seen Chiaretto go from darker to lighter? Uh, yes, of course. As a winery, in the past, uh, the tradition was to leave the contact with the skins for uh, many, many hours, and the result was darker uh, Chiaretto. But uh, for our experience, our feeling, our vision, our new modern taste, uh, it, we, we really need uh, to change a bit, uh, living from the tradition in an innovative way, uh, still uh, uh, respecting uh, the most important character of the Chiaretto, but uh, releasing wine that uh, when you work much more carefully, you really cannot uh, obtain a dark color. Not only the market, but what is the best way to obtain a Chiaretto. Now, of course, 
there's always another perspective. There are at least two producers in Bartolino making a really interesting kind of wine, kind of Chiretto Rosé. There's La Frage. You've probably seen their rosés in the U.S. market. They're pretty popular. And there's also Villa Calicantus. Both of these producers do what I'm going to call an intentional saignée. And what does that mean? Well, there's saignée when you sort of bleed off some rosé wine in the early part of a red wine fermentation. And then there's press wine, where you press red grapes and you sort of get a rosé from that first pressing. And then there's something in between. When you do a maceration for just a short while, and then you bleed off the rosé wine from that, which is usually a little bit darker in color. In the sommelier world, saignée wines can have a bad reputation because essentially they're byproducts of red wine. Making a saignée rosé is a way to boost the heft of your red wine. Next, let's head over to Le Frage to hear Matilda's thoughts on her salsasso. Matilda has sort of turned our notions of saignée or salsasso on its head. When saignée comes to mind, uh, the first thought is a red wine byproduct. And in fact, sometimes people will look down on saignée because it's picked at red wine ripeness and not rosé ripeness. And because of this, it tends to have less acidity. But even saignée in this way can still have a, a really nice place in the world. I'm not saying that I personally dislike saignée. I'm saying that a lot of wine circles tend to discredit saignée for this reason. But Matilda does something different. I make uh, my Bardolino Chiaretto uh, rosé, so the name is Rodon. Uh, Sagné with six hours skin contact. So the grapes are Corvina and Rondinella. I pick them up uh, separate because they are ripening. There, is, there are 10 days difference between uh, Corvina and Rondinella. Corvina is ripening earlier than Corvina. Sorry, Corvina is ripening earlier than Rondinella. And I make it saigné with six hours skin contact because uh, I prefer much more the rosé wines made like that. So for me, I made experiments. I tried also to make it directly in the press, but I prefer much more uh, the, the spicy and the color which uh, I'm going to obtain like that. And then uh, what I also like is that uh, I keep these skins where I bleed the, the rosé. I keep these skins in the, st in the steel tank and I add new um, fresh grapes to make Badolino red. By adding the spent rosé skins to her red wine, it's almost as if Matilda's red wine is enhanced by a rosé byproduct instead of the rosé being a subpar byproduct of the red wine. Matilda has almost reverse engineered the process. She's still been able to pick a rosé for early ripening. She saves those skins, pops them into the red, and you still get the same effect on the red wine. And that's why I sort of refer to what she's doing as intentional saignée. She has solved for all of the things that saignée tends to get discredited for. It's interesting because at Calicantus, there's a specific vineyard for rosé. The grapes are harvested for rosé only, they're not picked for a red wine, so they're not picked later. They're picked early for rosé. And then they're macerated with the skins. So it's like he makes his saignée rosé as a rosé. So it's intentional skin contact rosé. And I should also note that I'm using the word saignée, but in Italy, they would call this salsasso. Daniele describes his way of making intentional saignée rosé. So we remain saignée. We are not pressing. Uh, it's our way of working. I, I, I prefer to work in that way. Uh, we are an artisanal winery. I'm not interested uh, in um, having two pale, uh, uh, two pale rosé. One because um, it was not traditional here, so I understand the big change they had uh, as consortium. So it's super important, super uh, interesting. It's something that they had to go in that direction. But for my winery, I'm not interested in this. I like. Uh, a slightly darker rosé than, than pale rosé. So it's just my taste, you know? <laughs> and I want to make wines that I like to drink. So, you know, it's a very easy answer. <laughs> I think you tried your wine last night. Yeah, I think, yes. It was in the, uh, the, pizza, in the restaurant. It was the, the one written by hand, you know? Yes, uh, somebody described you as revolutionista. Revolutionista. Uh, <laughs> 
Or, or uh, no, if not more than revolution or revolutionist, I would say uh, reactionist. Reactionist, I would like to come back to the, <laughs> the past. Uh, anyway, you know, but I'm not judging. It's just uh, we are working this way. And I think it's the, uh, the right way for, of working for, for our winery. In, uh, in our winery in Villa Calicantus, every wine has its vineyard, every vineyard has its wine. So the grapes for the rosé are dedicated to the rosé. So we, we, we harvest the, uh, the grapes in the, at the moment, or at the right moment for the rosé. We put it in a tank and the day after, after one night of maceration, we take out all the wine. Okay, so it's not... Uh, the, those are not grapes for the rose, for the reds that then, then partially we use for the for the rosé. Those grapes for the rosé are dedicated to the rosé. And this way, uh, every year you can have uh, year after year you can taste our wines. And if you will have a vertical tasting in 10 years of our rosé, it will be the same vineyard worked in the same way in the winery, and you will have the influence of the. Uh, of the vintage, you know. So this is our way of working. Do you know? Uh, is that popular? Or more people doing it? Well, here was traditional. Uh, there, it's uh, senior. You mean dedicated senior? Uh, not so much. Not so much. I cannot say that is. We are the only one doing this. I don't. I would say a, a, a lie. Uh, but yeah, I don't know a lot of people doing it. Voila. So Lafraga and Calicantus both do this longer skin contact rosé, which is different from the post-2014 vibes of the region. But interestingly, Lafraga rosés still tend to be lighter in color, and they often get Chiaretto designation. Whereas Calicantus rosé tends to be darker, richer, and more brooding, and he doesn't always get Chiaretto designation, but he's okay with that. It's also interesting because Angelo Peretti points to direct press rosé as truly traditional, because it dates back to ancient Rome when wine was first made in the area. And on the other hand, Daniele points to Sennier as traditional because it reflects a different version of Bartolino's traditions. With enough history, almost anything can be traditional. And it's fascinating that both styles claim a connection to the past. So the 2014 Rosé Revolution and the crew focus has transformed Bartolino wine since the 1970s, but so have two other converging factors, a transition from pergola to guillot and climate change. In what is becoming a familiar tale, this generation of winemakers is harvesting at least a month earlier than their parents. Part of this is guillot, which pushes ripening a bit faster than the pergola, and another part is climate change, which has caused higher temperatures and unsteady weather events. My grandfather, um, so in the 70s, he never started to harvest before the beginning of October. Okay, uh, When now, at the end of September, we basically have finished to harvest. So we are one month in advance. So, you know, probably climate change influenced is influencing a lot our job you know so the, it's hotter summers are much hot hotter than um, than 20 30 years ago um, so the vines are reacting in a different way and also the wines until 80s here were 11 11.5 alcohol now is much more why because it's hotter so uh, so yes you know climate change is influencing everything even if we are not realizing directly, maybe. Franco Cristoforetti is the president of the Bartolino Consorzio. And here are his thoughts. The climate change, in fact, our region, in, in terms of timing of picking up of the grapes, going back 30 years ago, we used to picking up the grape middle of October. Now we start to pick up the grape, the same variety, at middle of September, 10th of September, so one month before. Not only due to the climate change, because also the way to manage the vineyards changed the, the timing. But the biggest issue now is we don't have a real spring and a real fall. We are going through summer and winter with two weeks in the middle, but not three months as in the past. One of the biggest changes when I was young, I remember we had snow for one month 
first knowing was this period, 7, 6, 8 of December, and the snow remained for one month. Now it's really rare to have snow here, and when we have snow, after two days, uh, the snow gone because it's raining or it's hot, and we, so the biggest change is in the winter time. And when it comes to vine training, the general transition from pergola to guillo has also changed the style of the wines and pushed harvest a bit earlier. One night after a stroll by the lake, I was pushed indoors because of the famous strong winds of Lake Garda. Inside, I chatted with Andreas Berger, who discussed the pergola guillo transition. Uh, historically, we had pergola training, and now uh, we prefer uh, guillot. Per- pergola has a bit lower alcohol. Gives a bad problem. Uh, with pergola, you have more uh, problems with uh, diseases. Yes, because uh, the, the tra- grapes are uh, on shadow, and so uh, for parasites, for it's easier to attack. Next, let's visit Fabio Zanato at La Morette. Fabio is in a unique position in the region. His family has a successful winery, but they also run a nursery, which supplies plant material and helps set the tone for the next decade for the entire region. Nursery wineries are incredibly special because they are uniquely in tune with the entire region, and they also help drive the future of all the vineyards. Now, not all nurseries are wineries, and not all wineries are nurseries, but nursery wineries are always ambassadors for their region. So in a similar way that Tablas Creek is important to Paso Robles and Hermann Wiemer is important to the Finger Lakes in New York, Le Morette is sort of like an ambassador and keeper of the flame for the plant material in Bartolino. So Fabio's insights are really uniquely informed. Yes, this is also something that is uh, belonging to my, let's say, studies and nowadays work because uh, being in this territory in northeast of Italy, in the area of Verona, close to Lake Garda, the Lugana production is based on one single autochton variety, which is Turbiana, T-U-R-B-I-A-N-A. And uh, <clears throat> the study started uh, some 20 years ago because we were able at university to identify the DNA Lochi, which differentiate this variety from others that were considered the same or very close to this. And uh, from there started a project of clonal selection that now, after 19 years, uh, is arriving on the final step to ask for the authorization of new seven clones. And um, also this request is very interesting because some of them are very far as uh, aroma profiles from the from the terpenic side to the esteral side, and that's the variability of the plant. So uh, we can say that the plant DNA has all the information. Then sometimes, because we are not focusing so deeply in the character of the plant, we are not getting the hundred percent of the potential of the plant. But thanks. To this kind of clonal selection projects, we were able to identify this potential, and now we can save and propose to our customers as an option for the polyclonal vineyards. And today in Lugana, that's the, pretty much the main white grape here. Of course, yes, yes. The law says minimum ninety percent, but I can say that uh, the majority of us as wine producers are using on its own, hundred percent. It's the real message of terroir of this territory because this territory has grown up thanks to this variety. And this variety is showing this great potential only in this special condition of very, very hard clay soils. So that was Fabio talking about the Turbiano grape variety that makes the famous white wines of Lugana down at the bottom of the lake. And he's been really instrumental in clonal selection for that particular variety but he also supplies a lot of the vineyards with other plant material. Let's dig into a little bit of the red grape details. So if you draw a circle on a map that encompasses Bartolino and Valpolicella, you'll have identified a kind of small area that's famous for Corvina, Rondinella, and Molinara. In Bartolino, Corvina is the grape variety that reigns supreme with most producers. It's often made on its own, but it's usually the greater percentage of a blend. It's likely been around since at least the 1600s, 
it's very reactive to mildew and sun. So as the climate changes and makes these threats more common, I can see why people are switching away from the higher mildew pergola environment to avoid mildew. There are a handful of wineries in other countries making wine from this grape, but overall, these grapes, Corvina, Molinara, Rondinella, are mostly in Bartolino and the neighboring Valpolicella region. Corvina has very dark skins, and it makes a bright red wine with tart cherry flavors. It can also take the form of a rosé, a light red, a heavy red, or a pasito wine, and you find all of these versions around Lake Garda in Bartolino and the neighboring Valpolicella region. Rondinella is a blending grape, and the only single bottling I could find was at La Frage, where Matilda is particularly fond of this particular grape. Daniele thinks that field blends and co-fermentations are important. And here are his thoughts on grapes. Um, I'm very much um, for, the, for the blend. So I'm not for Corvina 100%. Um, because, for example, Molinara, that now, nowadays is no more used so much because it's very light in color, very low in alcohol, uh, gives this sapidity to the wine that uh, Corvina doesn't. Um, so if you have um, 90 or 95% Corvina, for me, you are losing something. Okay, So um, uh, this is why we have a, a co-plantation in the vineyards and we harvest them all together at the harvest. And we have a co-fermentation of them during, during the fermentation. So what would you eat with these wines? Well, at Tavernacus, I had a magnificent, soul-warming chestnut stew served in a chestnut bread bowl, one of the great food memories of my life. I'm a huge chestnut fan. These regional chestnut dishes are incredible with the reds. And of course, Lake Garda is known for, can you guess? Fish! I tried many different kinds of lighter preparations, perfect with Chiaretto, and I also tried some deeper, richer fish stews with squash and potatoes. Well, uh, you understand that uh, in the lake there was a lot of fish, right? So to have uh, the perfect wine for the fish that you were catching in the lake of Garda, uh, it, was, uh, it was wonderful, you know. And uh, I, I, I've never been a fisherman, but you know, when, you know, if you are Catholic in, uh, on Friday, you have to eat only fish. So there was no way to avoid to eat fish. So on Saturday you were going to the, I mean, on Thursday evening, you were going to the shop which was selling fish, which was open only two days a week, Thursday and Friday, right? Then it was closed, right? And um, you were choosing the fish and they were telling you trout from the Lake of Garda, right? It was advertised as a special uh, fish from a windy place. Lake Garda is also famous for panettone and tortellini. And as this guard of winemakers sets a new tone for the region, we're also seeing the beginnings of the next generation. We have an even newer generation, full of youthful energy. At a tasting, I caught up with one of the Costoza boys. In his early 20s, he had just gotten back from a stage at Cullen Winery in Australia. He fell in love with Petnat, and he may have made the first Chiaretto Petnat. It was delicious, by the way. So I'm Giulio Cosentino, and I'm the winemaker, one of the winemakers of the, of the winery. So are there many people making uh, Petnat? Uh, actually, I don't think so. A kind of crazy guy, actually. I, I would like to, to say that about myself because I, I will, I, I'm really curious. So uh, every year I try to introduce something new and experiment, uh, try something, something different from, from the others. And uh, I came from another vintage uh, that I did in, uh, in Western Australia. And when I was in Western Australia, I fell in love with Petnet. So when I came back, I said to myself, no, I should try, I should try to do that, especially on our Chiaretto. Can you label a pet nut as Chiaretto? Actually, I don't really know, but I think that it should be, should be, could be labeled, I think. But uh, I don't know if I would like, um, could be something uh, out of the orchestra, but I think that actually, yes, could be also bottled with the name of Chiaretto on the label. Cool. <laughs> Kiaretnat. Kiaretnat, yeah. <laughs> Why not? 
So what are the main takeaways of Lake Garda wine? Lake in the Alps, Mediterranean microclimate, lemon trees. Ancient Rome saw Lake Garda and Provence as sister regions and made rosé in both areas. The 1800s, it was famous for light-bodied red crews. In the mid-20th century, we had tourism and the winemakers boosted production, but it hurt quality. Then pergolas switched to guillot, exacerbating the effects of climate change. Bulk wine production gives way to a focus on quality. We have a crew rediscovery. We have a press rosé production in the rosé revolution, though still some people use salsasso. There's a historic connection, and there's also the Trebianos from the south part of the lake. Oh, and the new generation is getting into Petnet. All Drink to That is hosted and produced by myself, Levy Dalton. Aaron Scala has contributed original pieces. Editorial assistance has been provided by Bill Kimsey. The show music was performed and composed by Rob Moose and Thomas Bartlett. Show artwork by Alicia Tenoyan. T-shirts, sweatshirts, coffee mugs, and so much more, including show stickers, notebooks, and even gift wrap are available for sale if you check the show website, alldrinktothatpod.com. That's I-L-L, drinktothatpod.com which is the same place you'd go to sign up for our email list or to make one of the crucially important donations that help keep this show operating. You can donate from anywhere using PayPal or Stripe on the show website. Remember to hit subscribe or to follow this show in your favorite podcast app, please. That's super important to see every episode. And thank you for listening. And I want to give a special thanks to everyone who shared their thoughts, including wine journalists Catherine Cole and Angelo Peretti. Angelo's grasp on Lake Garda history is vast. His 2001 book, Il Bartolino, is a good resource for anyone wishing to dive deeper into the region. And Catherine Cole's Rosé All Day helps contextualize the Chiaretto Rosé of Bartolino on a global scale. Also thanks to the winemakers who shared their stories. Gabriele Rause, Luca Valetti of Cantina Valetti, Marco Rufato of Le Genestra, Roberta Bricolo of Gorgo, Francesco Piona's recollection of his father Luciano's first rosé at Cavalchina, Matilda Poggi of La Fraga, Daniele Domenico Delani from Villa Calicantus, Andreas Berger of Weingut Turnhof, Fabio Zanato of La Morete, Franco Cristoforetti, the president of the Bartolino Consorzio, Giulio Cosentino of Albino Piona, and extra special thanks to Irene Graziotto, who helped connect me with many of these voices. I hope you've enjoyed this tour of the wines of Lake Carta. Cheers to you all. Yes, I think our region was one of the most known regions for wine in the past. And now I like very much because we are trying to go back to our roots, rediscover the high quality wine we can produce here.